I think I enjoy the kids as much as anything about our church. Before, uh, before we met in here, a group of us met in prayer, and, uh, you know, the adults are just going around praying, but then unsolicited, the little ones just start praying, and uh, there's something about listening to a little one pray that just is right. It's, uh, it's good, and it's good for the soul. So, Peggy and I have been out of town a couple of weeks. We've been on vacation. Um, we had our anniversary. It was our 26th anniversary. And then uh, Peggy decided for our anniversary we'd paint our house. That to her is kind of fun. To me, I would rather go out and have my tail whooped every day. No. Um, and then we went and spent some time with my mom and extended family over uh, off of Lake Wadawi. Some of y'all probably never even heard of that, but they have a home there on the lake. And it was great, great time away, great break, but, uh, but I'm glad to be back. <clears throat> and uh, two weeks ago, not last week, because David taught last week, but two weeks ago, Greg Ashworth taught on John 20, I believe it was verses 1 through 21. And so today, because we here at First Baptist Chattahoochee have a conviction about expository preaching, teaching through the books, I'm going to teach from John 20, 22, and 23. Now that's the shortest piece of scripture I think I have ever taught in my now. I'm into my fourth year here at the church. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, but we completed three years in July. But I'm just teaching two verses. And the reason is, if you're a serious student of the Bible, you're going to like today. If you're not, I'll wake you up when it's over at the benediction. But if you're a serious student, there are some, at least two, really challenging things being said in our text today. And I, I tried to put in the Thomason, the doubting part that comes right after our text. But the more I work, the more I realize I've got to spend more time explaining these two verses because there's so much there. And so <clears throat> I'm going to do that. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. It's getting close to the end of the summer. We're going to end the fall end of summer, fall, I intend to teach the first 11 chapters of Genesis, believing that all of the foundational doctrine of the Bible can be found in seed form in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so we're going to do that, and then we'll probably leave the Old Testament after those 11 chapters and go to Romans and do some work in Romans and then probably come back to Genesis and finish it. So that's the plan for the future. But today, look with me in your Bible at John 20, 22 and 23. Now, Pam has just read this, but because it is challenging, I want to read it again slowly with you and have you looking at it with me, thinking about, okay, where does Clint see the challenges? Look here, John 20, 22, and 23. I'm reading from the ESV, 
I think a lot of you probably have an NIV. That's, that's a great translation. It's what we have in our pews. But here's the ESV. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to 10 of the disciples. Thomas isn't present, and Judas is already betrayed. So he's not there. And then it says, if you forgive the sins of any, these are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the very first challenge is that there is an apparent double gifting of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may be saying, I don't see that in what we just read, Clint. The reason I say that is in the rest of our study in John, Jesus has been telling them, when I leave, I'm going to give you a helper in the Holy Spirit. But in our text here, Jesus hasn't left, and he's breathing on them the Holy Spirit. So it's almost as if what he said earlier doesn't really make sense. He's breathing on them now, the Holy Spirit. So, where did Jesus promise the Holy Spirit? Look with me just a couple of chapters back in John 14, verses 16 through 17. John 14, verses 16 through 17. This is where Jesus had promised the disciples that when he left, he was going to send a helper. So in that, in that verse, starting in 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. Catch the wording. This is really important. He dwells with you, but then it says, and will be in you. In the old covenant, the old way that God dealt with the saints before Jesus comes and initiates a new covenant, Covenant's just another word for promise. God promised the Holy Spirit would be with his people, but in the new promise, in the new covenant, he says he will not just be with you, but he will indwell you. He will come and live inside you. And that's an important distinction even with our text today. So then the question that I have in my study, and maybe you do too, is when will he be in them? When will he be in them? Look at John 16, 7 through 8. John 16, 7 through 8. It says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So my question was, when will the Holy Spirit be sent to them? 
And Jesus is answering in this text when he goes away. So you see the problem in our text in John 20, 22 is he hasn't gone away yet. He's with them. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. You see the, you see the conflict of what Jesus has previously said and what's happening in our text. So then the question is, does Jesus give them the Holy Spirit in John 20, 22? Or do they receive the indwelling Holy Spirit later at Pentecost? Pentecost, you've heard of Pentecostals, but Pentecost comes from a Greek word, and you know what it means? 50. Pentecost means 50. So Jesus is crucified on Friday. He's resurrected on Easter Sunday. That's three days. He appears to the disciples and others for 40 days. And then he ascends to heaven. You know how many days went by after the ascension? I'll give you a guess. Pentecost. So at 50 days in Acts 2, God sends the promised Holy Spirit. And that's why we call it Pentecost. 50 days after he came, the promised Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, 49, and I didn't write this in my notes, so I'm going to turn there with you as well. But look, look with me at Luke 24, 49, not 39, but 49. So Luke 24, 49. And this is what it says. Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, the promise was the Spirit, upon you. But listen what he tells them. He tells the disciples, But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. He's telling them, stay in Jerusalem until Pentecost. Stay in Jerusalem until the power from on high comes on you. Now look at Acts 2, and you're going to see where that happens. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Hopefully, though, this will help you understand what's happening here in John 20, 22. I told you the serious students are going to like this. Everybody else, I'll wake you up at the benediction. Acts 2, 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, so Jesus said, go and stay in the city until it comes. It says, they were all together in one place, so they had obeyed. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so, when Jesus breathes on them in John 20, 22, we still have that question lingering, just kind of hanging out there. What was that? So this is in my study. I looked at Brooks Foss Westbrook. He's a British theologian from the 19th century. This was his answer to our question. He says, 
that the power of new life was what was imparted to them in John 20, 22. And then in Acts 2, it was the power for ministry. I don't buy it. I don't think that's a good explanation of what happens here. And then F.F. Bruce, who's a famous theologian, he basically took what Westott said and he just inverted it. He said it was just the other way. I don't buy that either. I don't think that's a good explanation for what's happening here. John Calvin, he says there was a sprinkling of the Spirit and then a saturation of the Spirit at Pentecost. I don't like Calvin's explanation either. I'm just giving you some ideas of what people have said about this text. It seems preferable to me and others, one recognized theologian would be John Stott, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit actually does happen at Pentecost because of what's been said over in Luke 2, go and wait and there will be this pouring of the Spirit on you. And then when you look at Acts 2, verse 33, look there with me if you would. Acts 2, verse 33, it says, Luke is writing, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and and see this, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, and then just look down a little further to 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what has happened in Acts 1 is the Holy Spirit has come and then Peter, for the very first time, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, begins to preach. And you know what happens by the end of Acts 2? 3,000 people place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first time we see a mass number of people placing faith and repenting. The Holy Spirit now is indwelling and working in a powerful way. So John Stott, the theologian, says, the Spirit in John 20, 22 is to the disciples symbolic and educational. Jesus is teaching them about what is to come. And not only that, but the Spirit is connected to the Old Testament where Do you remember how God created Adam? It was his breath. He breathed into Adam life. In Ezekiel, he breathes and the bones, the dry bones in the valley come together and they become alive. So Jesus is saying it is the breath of God that brings life. And so we see that in John 20, 22. It has enormous ramifications for the Christian today. The reality is this. If you sit here today and you are a believer in Christ, a true believer in Christ, you have this indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Not everybody has that. I got in a conversation with someone this week 
who was uh, kind of a, a strong socialist. And I'm not necessarily strong socialist, strong capitalist, strong any of those. I'm sorry, I, I got distracted. Um, but uh, as we were talking about socialism and capitalism, he was bashing capitalism and he was saying how great socialism is. And I said, at the end of the day, they're both fatally flawed. And he said, how could you say they're both fatally flawed? And you may be sitting there thinking, Clint, how could you say they're both fatally flawed? They're both fatally flawed because foundationally man has a sinful heart. And we're going to mess up any system because of greed and selfishness. And so they're fatally flawed. Um, there's a mute button on that thing somewhere. The... Uh, It is interesting in our text because if you look at what happens next, we've talked about the John 20, 22, but if you look at John 20, 23, now we're talking about authority. I told you in the title, the apparent double gifting of the Holy Spirit, and is there such a thing as church authority? So we switch gears to this idea of authority, and this is what Jesus says. He says in our text there, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So is Jesus saying that we, you, me, we can forgive sins? Is that what he's saying there? It certainly seems like he's saying that. As part of our witness, the disciples are given authority delegated to them by God. And he's saying, if you forgive their sins, their sins are forgiven. If you withhold, they're withheld. This verse is, uh, this verse and Matthew 16 are highly contested verses throughout the history of the church. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time on this verse. The, uh, the verse, Matthew 16, 19, if you turn there to Matthew 16, 19, I would like for you to read with me. It is similar to our verse, but this is what it says. Jesus is speaking to Peter and to the disciples, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, the Roman Catholic Church interprets this verse this way, that Peter is the first in the line to the Pope, and that the Pope is the successor to Peter, and therefore the Pope has the authority, even over the Scriptures, to make decisions and to forgive and to not forgive. That's one way that this verse has been uh, interpreted through the centuries by the Roman Catholic Church. 
Therefore, priest, in our verse, John 20, 22, can forgive sins. But I tell you emphatically in Mark 2, 7 and other places throughout the Scripture, the Scriptures teach that God alone can forgive sins. The Scriptures teach that God alone can forgive sins, not man. What Christ was actually saying is that any Christian can declare that those who genuinely repent and believe the gospel will have their sins forgiven by God. That's the power that we have as Christians. As we proclaim the gospel, we can proclaim that if you repent and place faith in Christ, there is a relationship with God on the other side. However, Christians also have the responsibility to warn those that who reject Jesus Christ die in their sins. This this wasn't for the disciples a new message. They had already heard it when Jesus proclaimed it to Peter in Matthew 16, 19. And so then the question becomes, I don't know about you, but I don't use it as common language with my children. Whatever I bind, I've bound, and whatever I've loosened, I've loosened. Children, they'd be like, dad's lost his brain. So what does this mean in Matthew 16 when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. One, I have this question, and you should too. What are the keys to the kingdom? And what are they for? And then, could you really bind something on earth and it be bound in heaven? Could you really loose something on earth and it be loosed in heaven? It's baby exit moment. So, binding and loosening. To bind is to forbid. To loose is to permit. All right, so what does that mean, Clint? Give you an example. Jesus is telling the disciples, and by telling the disciples, he's also telling the church, and I'm going to show that to you in a moment. Let's say that there's a situation where there's someone in our church, in this church, who we all know as a church, they're not living in line with the scriptures as a Christian, that there is this sin in their life, and it's obvious and aware to all of us. The church, this church, should come to that person and bind them from at least taking the table when we take the table. And that would be sending a message to that person, you're not in right standing with God, therefore you should not be taking of the Lord's table. That is a common practice in healthy churches, and I believe it's a very good practice. The other thing would be, we might permit them if they repent and they respond in a healthy way, and we have bound them from the table, now we might loosen that. We might permit them to come to the table. That's the way the church should operate. The issue is, 
We don't always operate that way. And in our day and age, it's at least mildly controversial to say that the local church isn't just a voluntary association of Christians. It's not a resource center for Christian life or a means of fellowship that you're free to take advantage of if you want. The church, or it's probably equally controversial to say that, in fact, the local church plays a unique and vital role in God's work of redemption because it is the embassy of the kingdom of heaven in this dark and fallen world. Christ intended for his church to be practiced in a biblical manner. And when done so, he gives it authority. Whatever you forgive shall be forgiven, and what is not forgiven is not forgiven, just as it is on earth it is in heaven. God has given the church the authority to carry out the work of the kingdom on earth. This is a very serious and sobering thing. Not one to be carried out without much thought, prayer, and careful consideration. In other words, let me say it this way. The local church was created by King Jesus himself, commissioned to do a particular thing in the world, and chartered with the authority to speak in his name. What Jesus meant when he said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. What did that mean? I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. We could take it to mean what the Roman Catholics have taken it to mean, and that is the leaders of the church make the decisions. But I will say, and I hope you would too, I always, and we are always under the authority of the word of God. It is our authority. And if I say something or if you say something that is contrary to the word of God, I know immediately that's not right. I know that immediately. So believers who have mutually, now listen to this, believers, us maybe, who have mutually affirmed the soundness and the genuineness of each other's allegiance to the king, Jesus and have recognized one another as members of one body, together as a church, now have authority to speak for Jesus regarding the what and the who of the gospel, both what the gospel is and who is rightly confessing it. We, the church, have the authority given to us by Jesus to say, yes, they do understand the gospel, and yes, that is the gospel. Or no, they don't. For example, <clears throat> when I was 20 years old, I became a Christian in February of that year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I went down to a summer beach project 
with the organization that I later went on staff with, Campus Outreach. And I grew in my relationship with the Lord. And by the end of the summer, I came back and I knew that I had never been baptized. Remember, I, most of you know, I did not grow up in the church. I'd never been baptized in any way, not sprinkled, not dunked, not dunked, sprinkled, uh, none of it. So I went to my local uh, Baptist church, and it was a good church. I had a lot of good friends there. And at the end of the service in August of that year, I walked down the aisle, and when a staff member met me at the end of the aisle, I told him, listen, I became a Christian in February. I've been at this summer project, and I've grown a lot, and now I realize, as an act of obedience, I should be baptized and identify with Christ. And he said, that is correct. I said, but, but know this. I said, I live in Carrollton, Georgia, where I'm going to school, and I think it would probably be better for me to join that church out there where I live because I'm never here anymore, even though this was my hometown. Well, two weeks, I got baptized two weeks later. By the third week, I got a letter in the mail from that church. And the letter said, congratulations, you're now a member of such and such church. And I thought to myself, I distinctly told them I was going to join that church in Carrollton. I wonder why they made me a member. Not only that, but I began to question the whole membership process a little bit. Like, nobody asked me my story. Nobody asked me if I even understood the gospel. I just got a letter in the mail that said I'm a member. You know what the church did when they sent me that letter? They confirmed, knowingly or not, you're a Christian. The fact is, nobody in the leadership of that church ever even asked me a single question. There's no way they knew if I was a Christian or not. They had no way of knowing that. And let me ask you this. Is that handling the keys to the kingdom in a healthy way? I don't think so. The American church... Its pastors and its lay leaders have used the keys to the kingdom poorly. They have been too enamored with numbers, nickels, noses, and not with the souls of people. We've used emotionalism, sentimentality to get people to come forward and pray a prayer all the while, they don't even understand the basic tenets of the gospel. And now these people fill our churches in America. Not only do they fill our church pews, but they're in deacons meetings and elders meetings. And they're making decisions for the church in America. And they have no Holy Spirit indwelling in them. You know what that leads to? A worldly secular church unregenerate people sitting in the pews believing unconsciously they're earning their salvation by being good while all the while oblivious to the reality of biblical faith 
I did a funeral two weeks ago. If you could ever be certain that someone wasn't a Christian, it, I was certain of that when I did the funeral. Whole lifetime of prison and drug abuse and alcohol abuse, and his wife left him and wouldn't let him see his children, and he ends up dying. And I can't tell you the, who he is or the whole thing, but everybody that got up, except for me, affirmed and said, don't worry, he's in heaven looking down. He's so excited and encouraged that y'all are here for him. And I'm sitting over there as the pastor, and I'm thinking, are we just too scared to speak the truth? Maybe so. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. This verse says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. Listen to that. The, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I think there's going to be fewer people in heaven than, than fill our churches. And here's another thing. Do you know what it said maybe above the gate, the wide gate that many are entering into? It didn't say hell. People wouldn't go, that's the gate to hell. I'm in. No. That gate, that sign, I bet says heaven. This is the way to heaven. And they're fooled. You couldn't fool them if you wrote hell up there. So what does that tell me? That many are deceived. They think that they have found the way, but the scriptures say that way is easy and it leads to destruction and many will find it. And then further down in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Stop right there. Who, who, who enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want to be real careful here. You don't do to get into heaven. You trust in what Christ has done. And when you really understand, understand at a heart level what he has done, you place your faith and repentance in him, and then from your heart flow good works out of gratitude and grace. And so when this verse says, but the one who does the will of my Father is, who is in heaven, it's saying the evidence of true conversion is a grateful heart, and from that heart flows good works. And so what I found was right after I finished the sermon, another Baptist pastor friend of mine came up to me, and he said, but didn't he pray to receive Christ with us when we visited him in prison? One, I didn't remember that at all, even though I did go with him to that prison. But two, even if he did, James, the brother of Jesus, writes 
Faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not a saving faith. If you encounter the true Lord Jesus Christ, think about this. The greatest being in all the universe. Everything that is beautiful and good and true and right. If you have a true encounter with him, can you really just be the same old person you were after that? There's no way. You would, you would be forever and eternally changed. And so, why do we have so many who are clinging to a time in their life that they became a Christian and their lives have never changed? I would say it's Matthew 7. It's Matthew 7. The gate is wide that leads to destruction. They are deceived by the deceiver, by the schemer. They're not trying to trick me or you. They're fooled. That's what the scriptures teach. And Jesus says at the end of that, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so in closing, Jesus has given the church responsibility to forgive or not forgive. In other words, if you say that you're a Christian, it is the responsibility of the church to help you clarify that. And that's why at our church we now do a membership interview. And we take you through a process where we as a church affirm your faith or we say, I don't know that you really understand this. And that's critical. And it is a primary role of the church. And we see it in Matthew 16. And we see it in John 20, 22. That is what is happening. That is why I have spent the time to talk about it. We must be willing as a body of Christ to speak into one another's lives. And if there's unrepentant sin, we should go to that person and we should confront that person with that. And hopefully, if God is at work in their heart, they will repent of that. Now, how do I know this? I'm going to ask you to look at one last verse, and I'm going to close with this. Matthew 18 is, my wife, when we did this last night, she said, you ought to read the whole 18. And I said, I'll already have talked for 40 minutes, and I can't do that. (laughs) But in Matthew 18, you have the story here of a man who is an unrepentant sinner and he is unwilling to repent of his sin and so in Matthew 18 17 here's the instruction it says if he refuses to listen to them in other words one person went then he went and got somebody else and they went And it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In the NIV, it says another word. It's what? A pagan. Let him be to you as a pagan. Truly, I say to you, and here it is again. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what this tells me 
is the Pope doesn't have the keys to the kingdom. He doesn't. It also tells me the pastor doesn't have the keys to the kingdom. It also tells me the deacons don't have the keys to the kingdom. You know what this verse says? And others back me on this, theologians. Tell the church. The church has the keys. And if they say forgiven, forgiven. If they say not, not. The church is to make the decision about this pagan. That's critical. When you understand that, all of a sudden, your ecclesiology, your understanding of the church should just be massively enhanced. See, the church isn't just where I go and I hear great music and I sing and I hear a pastor talk too long and that kind of thing. A church is a body of believers who are coveting together to help one another grow in Christ. And you can't do that if you don't know people. Like, well, I go to this church. You know, I, before I was here, I was in a church of 10,000 people. It was really hard to do church there because we didn't know everybody. I love the fact that we're small. I'd like for us to get a little bigger, but we can know each other. And the church is supposed to know each other, and they're supposed to step in and speak into each other's lives. That's the true biblical church. The church is God's agent on earth. His people should be building his kingdom by declaring forgiveness and declaring unforgiveness. Meaning, if we do not see fruit of real salvation in a person's life, we should say so. Membership. This makes membership in the local church paramount. It is really important to be a member of a local church. It doesn't have to be this church. But if the church holds the keys to the kingdom, how important is the church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church and for your people. I thank you that the Lord Jesus has called us to carry out his mission, not our, not our mission, not build my church, but build your church. I pray that you'd rescue men from trying to build their church, build their kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.